Everything F1. Driven by fans, for the fans. And it's lights out and away we go! is still on provisional pole. This time for Stefan and Hamilton have crashed out. It's McLaren and Ricardo that win the Italian Grand Prix. Max Verstappen, for the first time ever, is champion of the world. Hello and welcome to the Everything F1 podcast with me, James Tiller. And alongside me today from the Everything F1 team, we've got Coops. And we're going to be chatting to the journalist and TV presenter, Lee McKenzie. She's got a book coming out today. I think you should all go and buy it. Uh, it's fantastic. And we'll be talking all about it. Hello. Hello. Nice to see you again. Yeah. How are you? Yeah. Very good. Thank you very much. Yeah, a bit uh, bias in your shirt, I noticed. Oh, I've, got, I've got many different shirts, uh, <laughs> different, different teams. I like to spread it about a bit. That's good. That's okay. In a Formula One sense. We've got Coops as well. Coops is a, a fellow Scot. Oh. So I thought Hi I'd, there. I thought nice I'd bring someone you. on that spoke the language. Yeah, saves <laughs> on the subtitling costs, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So Lee, you're here to chat about your amazing book. You've, you've sent across a copy to myself to have a quick read of it. And it's from what I've read, I haven't read it all yet, but it is a very, <laughs> very good, very good book, a very insightful okay. into the motorsport world. So can you tell us what inspired you to, to actually put pen to paper and write this book? Yeah, I was asked during lockdown to do an article about Lewis Hamilton from my perspective, because obviously mm. there was a lot going on in 2020 and he was being increasingly vocal about George Floyd, Black Lives Matter and social injustice. And my take on it was that actually he's always been very much like that. And I was sort of surprised that people had thought this was almost like a, a new crusade. Um mm when it certainly wasn't, maybe he just felt through experience and time and positioning that he'd found his voice and that voice could make an impact. Uh, but he's always been very like that. It's not like it was just, he was just trying to do something to fill in time. Mm. Uh, and then I thought, I wonder what else people don't know about the drivers. And I'd been asked before to do a book about me, which I never wanted to do a book about me because it would be very dull and I'm quite private. So I thought, no, actually Formula One is about drivers to me. It's all about the drivers. And for those people who watch Drive to Survive, which has increased the popularity of the sport, what it doesn't do in, in my eyes is let people understand why if Sebastian Vettel or Fernando Alonso won this season, why that would be a big deal, because I don't think you quite get the full backstory. And for me, it's really important to explain why people are like they are now is because of what's happened to them to get to that stage. And I was really keen to do that and hopefully use my interviews and insights to, to sort of increase that, that story of the drivers. 
Yeah, and well, you say you didn't really want to write a book about yourself, but it's actually a very clever way that you've written this book. You've written it about seven drivers, but your interactions with those drivers and you intertwine a bit of your history and how you were kind of, I, I suppose, kind of, thr- your dad was thrust into the industry of Formula One journalism and you kind of went with it along yeah. the way. So it's clever how you kind of intertwined your own history and the story yeah, of yourself. Yeah, thank you. And and a lot of it does go hand in hand. You know, when I went to Brazil for the first time in, in 2008, you know, ridiculous thing did happen in that we did get a gun stuck in our window on day one there which you know I was just thinking what is happening like it was David Croft at the time he was doing Radio 5 and Crofty and I actually still spoke about it last week we were just like what on earth was that day so yeah of course you know if you're going to tell the story of Brazil for me the story of Brazil can be told, which then leads you up to Lewis Hamilton and Felipe Massa and the madness that went on on the Sunday. For me, the madness started, I think, on the Wednesday and then the Thursday and then the Friday. So I just wanted to give a little bit of that flavour as well to to explain that it's not all flying around on private planes or business class and having a lovely time. You know, there is Mm. a little bit of jeopardy sometimes when you go to these places. Yeah, and there certainly was when you were in Brazil. What a, what a way to start your five live career over in, in Brazil. You talk about seven drivers specifically. Mm-hmm. Michael Schumacher's chapter obviously jumped straight out at me because he was the world champion when I was you know younger and, and kind of getting into the sport. I started watching him from 96 kind of seriously. Yeah. And so obviously he was a big name. Actually, astonishingly, as, as I was reading this, you had quite a close relationship with him throughout his time. Yeah, throughout the almost his second chapter, as it were, I did know Michael and I'd met him in the first instances when he was at Ferrari latterly but I didn't know him I wasn't working in Formula One at that stage and Mm. then when he came back I was so excited just hugely excited that I was going to get this chance to interview him on a regular basis Uh, and he probably is the the one where I've been a fan because the other drivers I've known as they've come up you know I've done GP2 with them or F2 or F3 or seen them and know their stories but as Michael i didn't know him I had you know he was there he was established Fernando I suppose in a way as well but Michael just had such an aura so when he came back to F1 I was hugely excited and for whatever reason we just we just sort of got on quite well the interviews were quite bold when I was watching because I had to do a lot of sort of going back through all my interviews and what happened and some of the ones I was watching back with Michael and I was almost like you know hiding behind a cushion I was like oh my gosh what I asked him that because you had to be bold with him because He didn't want anyone to be pussyfooting around him. That's not how you got a good interview with Michael. You had to almost confront him a bit, a a little bit like interviewing a political leader. You just Mm. had to go in with a question. He would give you what answer he he wanted. Normally not the one which was to your question, but yeah, it was a bit of a dance and, and we, we got on well. I got a bit emotional over that chapter with some of the stories, obviously coming towards the end of the chapter of talking about his accident and obviously the young Mick Schumacher now taking the mantle of the name into the sport. Definitely kind of played on the emotions there as a, as a big long-time F1 fan. I'm aware I feel like I'm hogging you, so I'll ask uh, Coops to ask you a question now. <laughs> Let, let's go for Coops. When I was reading the Michael Schumacher chapter, and it, it's, I liked it because it let you understand a bit more of Michael as the human. Mm-hmm. You know, as you know, uh, as you were probably well aware, Michael was very guarded when he was in the paddock. You only saw the Michael that you wanted to let out, and your book allowed that. And so, I, I'd like to hear a wee bit more about. You know, I've wrote down here in the notes, Michael Schumacher, Nina's ninety-nine lift balloons, and a horse named Lexus. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's about as surreal as it's going to get. So Michael knew that my background was horses. I love horses, ridden all my life. And his family had a ranch. His wife, Corina, is a really good rider. Gina Maria, his daughter, actually, is excellent as well, still competes, you know, on a weekly basis. So he came up with an idea, or Sabine Kem, his manager, who now looks after Mick, we were like, what can we do? And he was like, well, why don't you come over and compete? We'll do like a Western riding competition. And I was like, well, I've never Western, but I don't ride that way. He's like, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. And so I had two one hour lessons, got a horse from West Sussex that had competed at that level, took it to Switzerland along with some other people. And we I competed against Michael and it was just bizarre. And we did a lovely interview. The whole purpose of this wasn't just, you know, having a great weekend away, although it was. <laughs> uh, I did a really big interview for the BBC. And in amongst this, we were invited to like all the parties and everything that went with it because Michael, away from the cameras, was actually very giving in, in all that kind of stuff. He was private and you had to respect that. But, you know, we, we had this great party. So the competition finished. I was on the podium alongside Michael we got exactly the same points we were both furious because I got so competitive <laughs> against him so I'm on a standing on a podium with Michael in a Stetson and chaps leather chaps it was very odd and then the party started just when things couldn't get any more surreal and at one point my cameraman who's an excellent cameraman he's been in Formula One for many years got on stage and did a dance performed to it would be 99 red balloons but in German it's 99 Luftballon and Andy just got a, <laughs> took a whole new life on. And uh, yeah, so it was it was a great, great weekend of many surreal things that will just never happen again and probably shouldn't happen again. But it was great. So. But brilliant memories. Is that the, the same surreal moment when you get caught inside his car? Yeah, that was unfortunate. That's the one I thought you were going to mention. That one still makes me cringe to this day. I was meant to do a drive from the town hall in Spa to the racetrack. It was to Mark, I think it was his 300th race. And Bean got caught up. His manager got a phone call and had to sprint into the town hall to help Michael with something. So she was like, you take the keys, sort it out. So I opened the door and there was just stuff everywhere. And I said to the camera guys, because it was back-to-back -back races. And I, you know, a lot of the drivers do drive from one race to another. I was like, we can't touch his stuff. There's no way I'm touching his stuff. I said, we like, I think we just need to wait. Don't stick GoPros or anything in. But at that point, Michael came back before Sabine did because he couldn't find her. And I am literally in his car with his keys. He didn't know anything about this. And he just sort of did one of his famous eyebrow raises. And he was like, ah, Lee, I see you found my car. And I was just dying inside. I was like, oh, my. yeah. So that was really embarrassing. But he did find it funny. I mean, I think anyone else, he would have been probably a little bit annoyed. But for me, I, somehow I got away with it. But even now you can tell I'm still really embarrassed about it. <laughs> a cringy moment, but great to read in the book. Um, let's yeah. wind it back a little bit. You were always around the paddock, well, since like the, the very early to mid 90s, thrust into it because your dad was a journalist and then you found a love of it. Yeah, I used to go to Manicure, probably, I think I was there before I even went to Silverstone, got to see the drivers walking around in the paddock. Formula One was a world apart then from what it is now, let alone when you see pictures of like, you know, what happened in the 80s and then the 70s. It was very much buses with an awning out the front. A lot of the same faces that are still there today. So I've gone from being this kid there to sort of like growing up with, with lots of different people, which is, is lovely, really. Mm, that really kind of sparked my interest uh, reading your book and how you kind of dropped into it and then kind of just just felt the love for the sport like we probably all did. Mm -hmm. But you were 
in that very slightly privileged being in the paddock itself and having that first-hand experience as well. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate it. it's an unusual way to sort of start an F1 because it, I was doing it in rugby and athletics and things all the time. But because Formula One is so far removed from what normal people, as it were, go to see, you know, anyone can go to a football match on a yeah. Saturday or a rugby match or anything like that. And actually anyone can go to Formula One, but you can't always get into the centre of the, the heart of it all. So to start there was a little bit bizarre. Your second chapter is about Lewis Hamilton and how he kind of broke into the sport. He was this... Absolute. He just set the world alight in all the junior formulas and got his position at McLaren. Can you tell us between kind of Michael Schumacher and Lewis Hamilton, do you see the similarities that they have and then kind of see the differences they also have as personalities? Yeah, I think they're both incredibly private. They both do sort of like switch off. Let's not forget as well when Michael started to race, you know, social media wasn't really around. In fact, it wasn't really around until... Mm what, 2008, I think. And then it grew in popularity from from then. So it's a different world in, in every sense now. But I think it's not just for Lewis or for Michael, the desire and belief, and you see it with Max as well, that people have to win mm. is the, the common theme. It sets them above in everything. Just that can do, it will happen. Sort of almost like you hear boxers talk but sometimes with boxers, you're like, but like, oh, right, could you just calm it down, calm it down. Whereas yeah. F1, I don't know if it's because they're more slight and they're younger <laughs> or how it works. It's just a little bit like, it's incredible. The, you know, Max saying at the age of seven, he had a, his sort of life ambition was to be world champion. He's seven years old. You know, it's like, it's unheard of for people <laughs> to come out like this. And yet Formula One, everyone starts off with the belief that they can win and very few manage to achieve it, let alone a world champion. Well, you made Lewis Hamilton cry in the... Uh... I think I've made most people cry, actually. <laughs> I, I wrote in the front of Dario, my great friend Dario Franchetti, I actually wrote on the, in his book, turned up in motorsport, made some people cry, wrote a book, Lee. Uh, and I thought that just kind of sums up, because that's literally what he thinks I do. I like turn up in motorsport, make people cry, and then I go home at nights. So at, at the Brazilian Grand Prix, there was one race, four, four of them were crying at the... <laughs> In the driver's pen, I was just was a complete shambles. I don't know what happened, but it was it was just an emotional weekend. People were switching teams, leaving teams, all sorts. Uh, Seb had won the championship. Fernando had just narrowly missed out. Felipe was leaving Ferrari. Lewis was leaving Mercedes. Uh, sorry, McLaren. So yeah, it was just like you know a tsunami of tears. <laughs> yeah, it's safe to say it wasn't actually you, but it, it just uh, happened to be. In your wasn't area. me, but I get there. But but the drivers love it when they tell when they come up and say, "Who did you make cry?" I'm like, "What? That's unfair." Capes. No, well, actually, uh, speaking about the emotional side of Formula One, I was just finishing off the Felipe Massa side of it. How emotional, in general, was the end of that 2008 uh, Brazilian Grand Prix? Because for me, just the way that Felipe handled himself after everything went on, like. You couldn't not respect No, I think that's the key. Yeah, I think that's 100% correct. I mean, Felipe got more fans by not being world Mm. champion than he would have if he had been crowned world champion. I mean, it's so surreal. You know what I... People talk about last year, 100% get that. Um, It was, it felt, I don't know, manufactured wrong, whatever. Whereas 2008 was sport in its rawest, truest form. They're ultimately in black and white on paper, there was a winner and a loser. 
But in actual fact, in real terms, there was so, so much more than that. And even now, like talking about it now, I get goosebumps. Someone is sitting in a car, their family is in a garage, they're crying their eyes out at last. They've achieved their dream. And then they hadn't. One of sport's yeah. greatest moments in all of sport. I'm putting it out there. It was just phenomenal. Agreed. It was just the image of them all celebrating and then the realisation. Yeah. No, it's not. Just and heartbreak. Like, oh. Yeah. I wasn't, I wouldn't say I was a fan of Lewis, but watching Formula One, I think I started watching it around about, as you say, about the same time as you, but the early 90s. And that moment, I just went, this is going to be remembered forever. Mm-hmm. Regardless, it's just going to be remembered. Yeah. Uh, and actually, keeping on the uh, Felipe Massa's thing, I just I just read the part as well about you were holding Felipe's uh, yeah. helmet from his crash in Hungary. Yeah, that I mean that how... was. I went to Felipe's house in Sao Paulo when he retired for the first time, <laughs> and wasn't expecting to come back. And he was so gracious and giving with his time. And we went to his house and. I was just sitting in the living room. We were filming. We'd been chatting. We'd had lunch, and then I looked up and I said, Felipe. What is that the helmet from Hungary? Now, as I'm sure everyone will remember, Hungary, he was traveling behind the brawn of Rubens Barrichello's car in 2009 and a spring came off the back of Rubens' car and hit him just at the join of the visor and the helmet, but pierced straight, straight through. He was in a coma and then he had to take the rest of the year off, which seems a bit glib to skim over it like that, but it was a life-changing injury. And that helmet sits pride of place in his house. And he was like, no, here, just hold it, take it. And I was like, and I actually, when I was watching it back, I, I was just sort of looking at this thing in my hand, like, what on earth is this? And the blood's still on it. And and I said to him, why do you have this here? And he said, because people think it was the worst day of my life. He said, but it's it was the best because it saved my life. This piece of equipment saved my mm-hmm. life. And he has it there as a reminder to be grateful. And I think that's an incredible life lesson, really. And another person I want to talk about, obviously, while we've got you here, is one of my favourite drivers, Jensen Button. I did skip a few of the chapters to read Jensen Button because, obviously, he was one of my favourites. And you speak of him very fondly, like he's this just unchanged, really down to hurt, down to earth, despite all the fame and fortune that he's amassed over over his years driving and the celebrity status that he has. He's just the same person that he, he is when he started in Formula One. Yeah, and it's funny because we're in a sort of like Anchorman style uh on so it's a bit of a joke but like he's obviously Sky on Channel 4 I presented a couple of weeks ago now for ITV and what was really funny is that he was there driving and in Adrian Newey's car sharing it with Adrian's son Harrison and I actually had to sort of like go onto the grid crouch down mic in interview him and I actually started off by saying oh my gosh I bet we both thought these days were (laughs) over and and he was fantastic then he came and joined the programme and he is different in terms of Okay, he let, he, he's, you know, a father, a husband. He lives in California. He's a hell of a lot richer. He's a world champion. But in actual fact, he is just such a great human being that has not changed. And when you watch back the first interviews that Jensen did, and again, when I was doing this for the book, and I say this in the book, I was shocked. It's the same intonation, the same look, the same phraseology, accent, way he is, humor. I couldn't believe it. I was really thrown because sometimes you don't see the subtle changes that people make over the years, but he hadn't really changed at all. 
Mm, that's, that's nice to know. I knew he was always my favourite for, for a reason. What's your favourite moment from, from the book, maybe with Jensen Button then? From Jensen, I enjoyed going back to where he was from in Froome. We went back to all his old schools. He was given the freedom of Froome. It felt like sort of full circle. It maybe was, it was certainly not the most glamorous shoot that I've ever done with JB. <laughs> you know, we've gone around Tokyo together. We've gone all over. We've done some crazy things. But I actually liked the fact that I'd sort of gone on that full journey it's just, you know, where he started, everything that sort of set him up to to get to where he is. His family were there, which was lovely. Yeah, I think that was that was really special. Keeps. I think just for, for Jensen, for me, I knew we might be able to agree. It's when he was speaking to Fernando Alonso at Monaco and telling him he's going to pee in his seat. Yeah. And just like... Unnecessary, <laughs> I can't thought. That was just like, you know. Uh, totally unnecessary, but it's just... No one else could get away with it. No, I'm not sure if anyone else would ever have thought of it, to be perfectly honest. But uh, yeah, I mean, that was Jensen in a nutshell. Going now on to Max Verstappen, because yeah. we kind of have to talk about Max Verstappen. Uh, I noted you had your first conversation with him. Uh, were you shocked at how assured he was when you met him when he was yeah, I was. Yeah, I was really kind of taken aback. Because he was like a sort of gangly, awkward teenager coming up, hoodie on, flat cap down, didn't really want to make eye contact. He was in, thrust into this crazy world in spa. I interviewed his father several times because Jos came back really late and started doing A1GP. So I had met Jos a couple of times and, and DC, David Cothard knew Max. So before I interviewed him, he introduced me and all the rest of it. But Max was just like nobody else I'd ever met. Just so calm, so softly spoken, and so assured. In the book, you mentioned you put a transcript on about Max Verstappen coming in to Formula One, and it was a discussion around his age to the other drivers on the pad. And what struck me was, from an outside perspective, the general media always seemed to focus on his age, whereas the drivers were like, well, no, he's talented. We've seen him. I think Felipe was the kind of the one that ran it and said, "No, I've watched him. He's really good. He's this." And everyone else kind of went with that. Were you surprised that it was mostly that that they focused on rather than the other side? Yeah, but drivers are very that? pragmatic people. I mean, you speak to David Cothard, and it's very much you know you have a limited number of heartbeats. Use them well. If you're fast enough, you're old enough. If you're good enough, you're old enough. It's all about literally being good. Or you go home and there's no sympathy around that. You, you know, mm. drivers are yeah. very basic in their understanding of what is, what's right and what's not right. And it's very black and white to them. And it's interesting when you spend time, you know, sometimes I'll be like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. And they're like, what are you doing? Just do it. And I'm like, because I spend obviously mm. a lot of time with these people, our meetings, everything like that, you know. You learn so much from being mm. around drivers and how their mind works and how they can disconnect and switch off from things. But yeah, I mean, it's understandable. There was somebody coming into Formula One who was literally stepping out of a junior category, hadn't been seen in an F3 or an F2 or anything like that. Not sort of F3, sorry, international that would support Formula One at the time and turn up in Formula One. Of course, it was going to be a talking point. I understand that drivers don't necessarily see in the same way that we see it, but they were both right. You know, they were correct to talk about whether he's good enough or not. And we were all correct to say, my gosh, he's young. It, it, it was just interesting because from the outside, we only seemed to, it only seemed to be about mm. age. But then when I was reading that part, the other driver, so like, as you say, very much, well, no, if he's good enough, then he deserves to be here. 
Could you describe to our fans why they should go out and buy your book and where they can buy your book? Well, hopefully they can buy it most places, but yeah, it's available <laughs> in all the, the usual places, whether it be bookshops, online supermarkets. There's an audio book. DC starts it off and then I pick up with all my stories. There's a hardback and an, a Kindle version as well. And what I wanted to do with this book is just talk about the drivers. They are the stars. Give some insight, you know. If you just watch A Drive to Survive, you might not understand, as I said, you know, where these drivers have come from and the graph that they've put in to put themselves in a position now. Hopefully there'll be a few laughs along the way. And when you get to the end of a chapter, you might have a slightly different opinion on somebody as to the one that you had before. And I think if I can sort of give a little bit of a insight into these drivers who are, you know, on the whole, great people that you might not understand otherwise, particularly if you're new to the sport. Yeah, and I say you've chosen seven drivers now. Does that mean there's space for, you've got plenty of career left in you? Could you maybe see a sequel to the book with Oscar Piastri and all the new newcomers? I don't think so, because the, what, the Formula One has changed so much. You know, the days of me heading off for, you know, a couple of days in between races to film with the drivers are over. That's what happens when you do 24 races. Right. I can probably see Oscar Piastri's house out my window at the moment. So, uh, you know, I do know <laughs> these guys, but it's it's different. I wanted to do these seven drivers because they've been a huge part of my career. You know, the other thing I, I mm. wondered about is, you know, I've known Jackie Stewart since I was a kid and should I focus on drivers like that? But in actual fact, I didn't go through the, you know, the careers with the older guys who I know, the Emersons, the Jackies, who have incredible careers and lived through an astonishing time in Formula One. But it would seem a bit disingenuous for me to focus on people like that. So I really wanted to focus on on people that I've shared a lot of experiences with and had good stories to tell. And did you enjoy writing the book? I did. I did. It's it's an interesting one. You start to, when it comes out, you're a bit like, "Mm, I'm not sure if I should have done this or not. But in actual fact, (laughs) it was was a really nice thing to do. And it jogged my memory on so many things because you don't sit down and look back. You don't have time to take stock, really. So at least I've done all my research and prep when I've got to do Sebastian's retirement interviews at the end of the year, because I'll literally just walk (laughs) in with my book and start reading to him. So, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> brilliant well thank you very much for, for giving us this time to obviously chat thank to you thank you very book. much good, it's luck, been a good luck with the launch no thank you and thank you. everyone should go out and, and read Lee McKenzie's <laughs> book thank you we are Everything F1 you can find us on all our social platforms we're on Facebook Twitter Instagram YouTube TikTok and of course our shiny website www.everythingf1.com you're also listening to us on this podcast itself, so we'd love it if you would hit the subscribe button on your favourite podcast streaming service, hit the bell, whatever the button it is, to get all of our latest podcasts in your earlobes as soon as they drop. All right, well, we'll see, we'll see you again, hopefully in the future. Maybe you can come and review a race with us. That would be yeah. uh, our dream. But, uh, but by all means, enjoy the rest of your book release. Thank you so we'll much. You guys. Thanks, guys. All right. Bye. 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 Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.